Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 202, Boston Transportation Firsts. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm going to revisit three classic episodes about advances in transportation made in Boston. First up, we'll take a look at a forerunner of today's MBTA. In the late 19th century, a bold entrepreneur built a full-sized working monorail in East Cambridge, but failed to convince the city of Boston to adopt it for public transportation. Then, taking inspiration from the World Flyers in last week's show, our second story will be about the first people to take to the skies in Boston. In the 19th century, daring aeronauts made a series of increasingly ambitious balloon ascents in Boston. Finally, we'll turn the clock back to the 1780s, just as the Revolutionary War was concluding. At the time, the town of Boston was on a tiny peninsula that was almost completely surrounded by water. The ferry connecting Boston to the mainland struggled to keep up with demand, and Bostonians were looking for a better way. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Now, before I talk about these Boston transportation breakthroughs, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is, for the second week in a row, not a book, but another podcast. This time I'm featuring episode 80 of the Dispatches podcast from the Journal of the American Revolution. In this episode, host Brady Kreitzer sits down with former White House webmaster and author Jane Hampton Cook to discuss one of my favorite Americans. As the wife of one U.S. president and mother of another, Abigail Adams' private influence could often be seen in public discourse. For example, John Quincy Adams' lifelong crusade against slavery was no doubt inspired by the mother who wrote in 1774 that she wished most sincerely that there was not a slave in the province. The correspondence between Abigail Adams and John is one of the most powerful glimpses into our founding era. And from three decades of letters, the most famous words Abigail wrote were, Remember the ladies. In a series of letters written while John was attending the Second Continental Congress in the spring of 1776, Abigail constantly urged him to get Congress to declare an American independency. In one of them, she considered what would come after independence and suggested a new role for women in the new society. On March 31, 1776, she wrote, By the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. But such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend. Why then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity, with impunity? Men of sense, in all ages, abhor these customs which treat us only as the vassals of your sex. In his response, John called Abigail saucy 
and he essentially ignored her suggestion to incorporate rights for women in the new code of laws. The 19th Amendment granting American women the right to vote would take nearly 150 more years to pass. In the podcast, Cook will explore what John's dismissal of Abigail Adams' most famous letter tells us about her role in promoting women's rights in the early republic. And for the upcoming event this week, we again have an embarrassment of riches, with three great talks coming up back-to-back. First up is a bit of modern history from the Mass Historical Society. On September 21st, Luke Nichter from Texas A&M will be leading an online author talk about his book, The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. and the Making of the Cold War. Here's how the MHS describes his talk. A key figure in American foreign policy for three decades, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. of Massachusetts, a well-heeled Eastern Establishment Republican, put duty over partisanship to serve as advisor to five presidents, from Dwight Eisenhower to Gerald Ford, and as United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Vietnam, West Germany, and the Vatican. Historian Luke A. Nichter gives us a compelling narrative of Lodge's extraordinary and consequential life and his immense political influence. Henry Cabot Lodge Sr. has made a few appearances on the podcast, usually as a staunch opponent of women's suffrage. However, I don't think the younger Henry Cabot Lodge has made any appearances yet. Tune in at 5.30pm on Monday, September 21st to learn the history we've been hiding from you. Up next is another installment of the Reflecting Attics series from Revolutionary Spaces. As I mentioned last week, Revolutionary Spaces operates both Old South Meeting House and the Old State House, including the site of the Boston Massacre. As part of their commemoration of the 250th anniversary of the massacre this year, Reflecting Addicts explores different aspects of the life and times of Crispus Addicts, who's become the most famous victim of the Boston Massacre. Here's how Revolutionary Spaces describes this installment. Attucks and the Politics of Liberty and Sovereignty in 18th Century New England reflects on the political conversations that were taking place around the time of the Boston Massacre, among white colonists and the African and Native-descended communities. The revolutionary period is most often associated with colonists arguing for their rights as British subjects, to tax themselves under a locally elected government. But that's only part of the story. Blacks were also seeking to make the case for liberty to end the practice of slavery, while native peoples continued to reclaim their sovereignty after more than a century of colonial expansion. The talk will begin at 4 p.m. on Tuesday, September 22nd. And finally, we have our first event as part of this year's Charter Day Lecture Series from the Partnership of Historic Bostons. As the name suggests, this partnership celebrates the historic links between Boston, Massachusetts and Boston, Lancashire. Their mission is to educate people about the 17th century history of both Bostons, and their peak season kicks off with Charter Day. Boston, Dorchester, and Watertown were all officially named on September 7, 1630, and the anniversary always kicks off a month or more of terrific programming from the partnership. Their event on Wednesday, September 23rd will be called Into the Wilderness, Leadership in Early New England, and it'll begin at 7 p.m. Here's how the partnership describes the event. Two governors, two colonies, four moments that defined a decade. Join expert staff from Plymouth, Patuxet, 
formerly Plymouth Plantation, and the Center for 17th Century Studies at Plymouth for an immersive exploration of the complicated relationship between Plymouth Colony's William Bradford and Massachusetts Bay Colony's John Winthrop. Delving into their personal correspondence and published writings from the 1630s, Plymouth brings its unique approach to living history to bear in an exploration of each man's unique approach to leadership and community in New England's earliest decades. All the events we featured this week are free, and as usual, advanced registration is required. We'll have the links you need for all three events, as well as to listen to the Remember the Ladies episode of Dispatches in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 202. Before I move on with the show, I just want to take a moment to offer my thanks to our sponsors, including Salvatore A. and Vicky G., who recently made one-time contributions on PayPal. It's thanks to folks like Vicky and Salvatore, and especially our Patreon sponsors, that we're able to continue making Hub History. Publishing a podcast doesn't cost nearly as much as a lot of other forms of media. We don't have to worry about our printing costs or our special effects budget, but we do have monthly expenses, like media hosting, website hosting and security, transcription, research database subscriptions, and audio processing. By signing up to contribute $2, $5, or even $10 a month, our Patreon sponsors offset those costs and let us get on with making the show. If you'd like to become a sponsor, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. Thank you to our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. I know that I start off every show by saying that Hub History is the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. But this really is one of my favorites. In 1873, lifelong inventor and Civil War veteran Joe Meggs filed for a patent on certain improvements in cars, locomotives, and trucks adapted for use on elevated railways. Over the next 23 years, he would revise and refine his monorail design into a beautiful, elegant alternative to the Green Line subway and the elevated Orange Line. He'd also spend that time attempting to convince city and state officials to adopt his system as Boston's mass transit solution. This story originally aired as episode 133 in May of 2019. Boston in the late 19th century was absolutely booming. The population had been swelled by immigration, and the bounds of the city were being expanded by both landfill and annexation. Railroads had opened up commerce with outlying areas, and our water and sewage infrastructure had finally been upgraded to support this growing population. However, the city's rapid growth and economic success moved faster than the city's street grid could be modernized. While many residents of Boston still lived within walking distance of their jobs, the new railways offered commuted rates for day passengers without baggage, allowing workers to begin commuting from the suburbs. Private carriages, hackney cabs, and heavy wagons were pulled by horses. By 1888, the West End Street Railway was operating thousands of streetcars, some drawn by horses, and others propelled by electric motors powered by overhead wires. While streetcars enabled people to get around, they did little to alleviate congestion, as they ran on the already crowded streets. The section of Tremont Street between Scully Square and Boylston Street was pure havoc. 
They carried shoppers to and from the main shopping districts, as well as office workers and government officials headed to Beacon Hill. By the 1880s, streetcars would pack Tremont Street end-to-end at rush hour, and people said that one could walk from Tremont Temple to the Masonic Temple on their roofs without ever setting foot on the ground. This city was desperate to find ways to get some of this traffic off the streets, and was considering two competing proposals. One of these proposals was a subway. The idea of running an underground railroad wasn't entirely new. London had some steam trains running underground since 1863, and it was in the process of constructing an electrified subway that would open in 1890. Subways had the benefit of moving traffic off the city streets, while not adding a visible blemish to the cityscape. Out of sight, out of mind. Not everyone was thrilled about moving transit underground. Opponents even formed an anti-subway league that gathered signatures on petitions against the subway and planted editorials in the Boston Post with titles like Hideous Germs Lurk in the Underground Air. They claimed that there was a new strain of subway microbes that was poised to strike subway commuters. At the time, the underground world was viewed with a great deal of suspicion. That's where rats and snakes came from and where sewage and dead bodies went too. It was the realm of the devil of unknown germs and evil spirits. As Charles Bond put it, the underground was seen as the realm of Lucifer himself, inhabited by lost souls, moldering corpses, strange forms of animal life, and noxious vapors. The other contending proposal was to build elevated railroad tracks over city streets. This system would not have to contend with Lucifer or lost souls, and it had some more concrete benefits as well. Like a subway, an elevated railway would take rapid transit off the street, freeing space for other modes of transportation. And, unlike a subway, elevated tracks relied on tried-and-true construction techniques rather than large-scale excavations using newly developed technologies. Another huge benefit to an elevated railway was the ability to use existing railroad passenger cars and steam engines. Steam power was incredibly difficult to adapt for use in a subway because of the noxious coal smoke and many proposed tunnels were too small or turned too tightly to accommodate existing passenger cars. Even the Boston subway, when it was first built a few years later, would be built for small electric streetcars, not steam locomotives. For many observers, the downside to an elevated railway was its intrusion into city life. The model that was being entertained for Boston was known as the New York System because the earliest elevated railways had started operating in NYC in the early 1870s. In this system, at least two railroad tracks ran parallel to one another on each line, and they ran on a solid decking built over the street. Some of our listeners will remember the elevated orange line, which ran down Washington Street until 1987, which was an example of a modernized New York system elevated railway. It was supported by iron towers on either side of the street that held up huge girders running across the street, which in turn supported the decking that the tracks ran on. The New York system was practical, but it was ugly, and it blocked out the sun, making the streets below dark and unwelcoming. One man believed he had a solution that would allow him to build an elevated railroad that avoided the downsides of the New York system. Joe Meggs, now in his 40s, had been an inventor since his teens. He was originally from Nashville, as his 1907 obituary describes. Joseph Vincent Meggs was born in Nashville, Tennessee in 1840, the son of returned Jonathan Meggs, a distinguished lawyer of whom President Lincoln was especially fond, and who was nominated by him for the bench of the U.S. Supreme Court. 
The mother of Joe Meggs was Sally Key's love, a Tennessee belle, a cultured woman who lived to perform noble deeds. She was heiress to several slaves, which in the course of events fell to her legal share, but which she refused to take, saying that she did not own them or anyone else, and so she set them free of their own accord. This was long before the war. Joe tinkered as a child, finding ways to improve the family's cook stove and creating his own printing press. At the age of 14, he was issued his first patent, for an improvement to railroad couplings, but it was the Civil War that indirectly led him to pursue inventing full-time. An 1882 Boston Globe profile summarizes his wartime experience. The entire family, casting their fortunes with the Union side, went to Washington, and young Meggs was for one year a corresponding clerk in the War Department. But this did not suit his active, listless temperament. He was accordingly commissioned as an officer in the Army, with which he remained through the war, accomplishing, among other things, the organization of a colored battery, which was the wonder of all who witnessed its workings. You might think that an artillery captain, in the middle of occupying a hostile state, would be too busy for academic pursuits. But not our Captain Miggs. In the closing months of the war, he worked out a design for a new repeating rifle. Somehow his sketches reached Union General Benjamin Butler, who was from Lowell. Butler invited the young captain to join him in Lowell after the war, where Meggs became one of the first employees of Butler's United States Cartridge Company, which was one of the largest manufacturers of arms and ammunition through World War I. Meggs was trained as a patent lawyer, but he was more interested in the practical side of innovation, eventually being awarded 22 patents, including designs for a school desk, a reclining chair, and an automatic fishing pole. In 1873, Joseph V. Meggs filed for a patent on certain improvements in cars, locomotives, and trucks adapted for use on elevated railways. This was the first iteration of the Meggs system, which would be further refined and perfected during development in the 1880s. At a legislative committee hearing, Captain Meggs claimed that his system was superior to any yet known to the world, that it is best adapted to the streets of Boston, that it can be built at 50% the cost of any other system, that it will not impede the free passage of light and air, that it is absolutely safe, derailment being impossible, and that it is capable of a higher rate of speed and can start and stop more quickly than is possible under any other system. This new system looked nothing like a streetcar or a railroad passenger car. It was designed as a monorail, so it was elevated off the street while there was no need for decking over the streets that would block out the sun. Instead, a single line of vertical posts would run down the sidewalk on each side of the street, leaving the air above the street itself clear. Here's how the July 1886 issue of Scientific American describes the tracks used by the Meigs monorail. The way upon which the train runs consists of a single iron girder four feet in depth for each span, placed over the center line of the posts. The girder carries an upper track beam and a lower track beam, upon the sides of each of which the rails, four in number, are placed. The two bearing rails, which carry the load of the train, consist of angle irons placed upon the outer upper edge of wooden stringers upon the lower track beam. Two vertically placed rails for balancing or friction wheels are carried by the upper track beam. The usual length of post, 24 feet, would give a clear headway of 14 feet, four feet being taken up by the truss, and six feet forming the foundation. So the track consisted of a row of posts with a single girder 14 feet overhead that carried two pairs of rails. 
A report written by an independent civil engineer in 1886 helps describe how the system worked, but we will include plenty of pictures in the show notes this week. The wheels that bear the weight, instead of being placed in the ordinary upright position, are fixed at an angle of about 45 degrees from the vertical plane, the bearing face of the wheels being grooved to fit down upon the angle iron supporting rail in the upper corners of the lower boom of the track girder, so as to bear both downward and inward on the rail. The locomotive has some minor novelties of construction besides the truck arrangement above alluded to, not necessary here to describe, but its main features are the horizontal driving wheels which pull the train by side pressure on the rails of the upper boom of the girder, and the hydraulic attachment by which the pressure or adhesion of these driving wheels upon the rails is created, maintained, and regulated at will by the engine driver. If you can, picture the single girder running down the top of a single line of posts. Now picture a train that straddles the girder with wheels on either side. A set of wheels that is angled inward toward the girder carries the train's weight, while above those horizontal wheels grip the top of the rails and provide power. Again, we'll have pictures in the show notes because this train is like nothing else you've ever seen. Besides the functional differences from a normal locomotive set, it was also cosmetically different. That Scientific American article describes how a cylindrical steam locomotive pulled a train of cylindrical passenger cars. The framing of the body is of light iron ribs bent in a circle, filled in by panels covered with rich upholstering, which covers all the interior. The exterior is sheathed with paper and copper. The cylindrical portion is 10 feet 8.5 inches in diameter. While adding to the strength, this form is expected to diminish the wind resistance fully one-third. The interior of the car is light, roomy, and pleasing to the eye. The seats are upholstered like the rest of the car, and comfort and luxury have been carefully studied in every detail. At each window is a specially designed device for securing ventilation without the annoyance caused by dust. Meggs believed he had a solution to Boston's rapid transit woes, but he had to convince not only the city, but the state legislature. He went on a protracted publicity campaign, publishing a book on his system, writing letters to editors, and taking miniature models of his monorail to presentations in front of any group that would have him. A blurb in a February 1882 issue of the Harvard Crimson reads like one of our upcoming historical events. The elevated railway system as invented by Captain Joe V. Meggs will be explained to the public by working models, stereopticon views, etc., at Lyceum Hall, Monday evening, February 20th, at 7.30 o'clock. The public are earnestly invited to attend, as it will be one of the most interesting addresses ever given in Cambridge. Ladies and gentlemen are both invited to attend. Admission free. After years of arguing, the legislature approved a state charter for Megs to form an elevated railway company in 1884. But there was one condition. He would have to build at least a mile of test track and run a successful test of his system. The July 1886 issue of Scientific American explains, The Cambridge test track was made necessary by a section in the Act of the Massachusetts Legislature authorizing the incorporation of the Meg's Elevated Railway Company, which states that no location for tracks shall be petitioned for in the city of Boston until at least one mile of the road has been built and operated, nor until the safety and strength of the structure and the rolling stock and motive power shall have been examined and approved by the Board of Railroad Commissioners or by a competent engineer to be appointed by them. Over the coming year, Meggs filed for a new patent. This one covered his entire system, from the method of erecting posts, to the rails, switches, and wheels, to the cylindrical cars themselves. 
By early 1886, the East Cambridge test track was operational, and Meggs brought in a competent engineer, George Stark, to prepare a report for the Board of Railroad Commissioners. The structure has been erected wholly on made land, upon what was once the bed of Miller's River, and the mud underneath this made land is soft and deep. A rod of round iron, five-eighths of an inch in diameter, was easily forced down near the structure by one man in my presence, its entire length, twelve feet, without striking hard bottom. The difficulty of building a secure single-post structure on this foundation has, of course, been much greater than it would have been on ordinary solid land. Now, as a sidebar, I know Meggs was building an engineering prototype, but I wonder if he was also trying to create just a bit of a thrill ride. In this next paragraph in the engineer's report, tell me the test track doesn't sound like a roller coaster. In addition to this natural difficulty, Captain Meggs has purposely introduced artificial obstacles in his track for the purpose of showing that he can run his trains around curves of less radius and on grades of greater elevation than are now practicable on ordinary steam motor railways and can safely pass horizontal or vertical angles in the track of very considerable deflection. One of his curves makes an entire semicircle with a 50-foot radius on a grade of 120 feet to the mile, and another turns nearly a quarter circle with a radius of 50 feet on a grade of 345 feet to the mile. The motive power and rolling stock submitted to my examination consists of a locomotive weighing about 30 tons, a tender weighing about 14 tons, and a passenger car weighing about 17 tons, making up a train of about 61 tons aggregate weight when empty. Accepting the distinctive running gear, or trucks, of this railway system, the general features of the motive power and rolling stock correspond to, or are supposed improvements upon, the locomotives and cars of ordinary steam railways. A cylindrical shape has been adopted for all the equipment, for which shape peculiar advantages are claimed as to the safety, convenience, and economy, and particularly as to offering less resistant surface to the wind. On April 29, 1893, the Cambridge Chronicle carried a brief piece detailing what's believed to be the last test run of the Meggs monorail. The engine and cars of the Meggs Elevated Railway, which have been in a dilapidated condition since the close of the establishment some two years ago, made a trial trip last week. How had such a promising system fallen so far, so fast? Things started to fall apart after a fire, which many believe to be an act of arson, destroyed a building and badly damaged the prototype passenger cars on the Cambridge test track. On February 4, 1887, Joe Meggs wrote, At 4 a.m., the night watchman reported that he saw flames issuing from the end of the car and that the whole end of the building was in flames. A casual inspection of the building, which I have had photographed, proves that his statement is correct and it is corroborated by the neighbors, and I am thus pained to be obliged to state that I believe the fire to be of an incendiary character, as do others who have seen it. The fire put Meggs in a difficult position of deciding whether to repair the damaged equipment. Without a working prototype, it was hard to advocate for more funding. But with limited capital, it might not make sense to repair a costly prototype. Both of these problems point out the disadvantages of the Meggs system. Though its champion believed he had worked out a superior system, the sheer unfamiliarity of the unique tracks and cars meant that skeptics had to see it to believe it. And unlike its two primary competitors the Meg's system would require expensive, proprietary equipment. The proposed Boston subway system would use existing electrified streetcars, while elevated railways following the New York system could use existing locomotives and passenger cars. The Meg's system would have to be purpose-built, 
from the posts holding up the girders to the tracks, to the wheels, to the seats in the passenger cars. Every piece would have to be custom manufactured, and that promised to be extraordinarily expensive. A request Meg submitted to the legislature in 1888 asking for an amendment to his company charter highlights just how much trouble he was having raising operating capital. We have received the highest approval of your examining engineer after many months of patient and exhaustive tests, such as no other railway on earth could have stood. And after all of this, we find that we cannot go ahead and raise money like other railways. The burdensome charter we have received precludes it. We have made faithful trial to do so. In face of all this, capitalists declare that they cannot proceed to build the road under the charter. And the persons forming the Meg's Elevated Railway Company being unable to proceed otherwise were obliged to form a construction company under the general laws so as to raise money enough to carry out the requirements of your honorable body, to build a test track, rolling stock, and motive power to be submitted to your engineer. We have done all this and can proceed no further. The Meg's company was eventually able to get their charter amended, but they were never able to convince investors that their system was superior to the competition. With their amended charter in hand, Meg's erected a much more modest demonstration track in Boston in 1894. On July 18th, the Globe reported, People entering the city this morning from the north and going through Adams Square thought that the long-looked-for rapid transit was an actual thing of the present. A substantial post of iron with a section of horizontal girder stood in front of Sam Adams, and he regarded it with a pained expression, as if he could not understand the progression of the present age. Last night's late homegoers remembered as they went by this mushroom growth that it was not there when they passed through the square last night. There it stood like a sentinel, and it was finished too. It had a neat little brick base with a granite curbing. Instead of a mile-long track with a working monorail, all the company could afford this time around was a single section of track, erected just about where Boston City Hall is now. Perhaps it was good publicity, but I don't think it kept the owners of the West End Street Railway up at night. In the end, however, Mother Nature was the straw that broke the camel's back. In March of 1888, a terrible storm swept through Boston. Known as the Snow Hurricane, it dumped up to 60 inches of snow on the region, killing over 400 people. Cities were paralyzed for weeks as carts, streetcars, and even railroads were immobilized while the snow was being cleared. In 1882, Meigs had expressed his utter contempt for the idea of a subway. All tunnels are ill-adapted for the purpose of rapid transit. They are inaccessible, are colder in summer and warmer in winter than the surface atmosphere, hence are condensers of moisture, therefore damp, dark, dingy, dirty, musty, and dangerous to health. All subways are very noisy, and it is impossible to ventilate them except at very great cost. These are the facts, no matter who has testified to the contrary. However, after the snow hurricane, the prospect of a subway that was not only always warmer in winter, but also completely protected from snow, began to seem like a pretty good idea. The subway became Boston's first rapid transit project, while Meg's was left to fight for scraps with the newly formed West End Street Railway Company which had consolidated ownership of the streetcar tracks throughout the city. It was not a fight that the Meg's company would win. They eventually ran out of money, and they were forced to sell their charter to an investment group led by John Pierpont Morgan in April of 1896. In the meantime, construction began on the Tremont Street subway, and the West End Company signed a lease to operate the new subway for a period of 20 years. 
Then, in November of 1896, J.P. Morgan and his partners completed a merger between the West End Street Railway and the Boston Elevated Railway Company, which held the Meg's Charter. A front-page headline in the Globe trumpeted, West End War Over. The streetcars, subway, and the potential elevated lines were now unified under a single management. The old Meg's Charter was used for projects that probably horrified Joe Meg's. At one point, it had been proposed to use the Meg's Charter to build a second subway tunnel under Tremont Street to handle trolleys coming from Roxbury. So much for the claim that tunnels are ill-adapted for the purpose of rapid transit. After the J.P. Morgan takeover, an article in 1897 describes a new proposal to build an elevated rail line along the original Meg's right-of-way. The trunk line beginning at Dudley Street opposite Guild Block will run via Washington and, as before stated, up Castle to Village Street, across the tracks of the Albany Road, over private property, and into the southerly incline of the subway. Through the subway toward Charlestown over the new Charlestown Bridge, now under construction by the Transit Commission, up Main Street, Charlestown, to Sullivan Square. You may recognize Dudley to Sullivan Square as the original route of the Orange Line, before 1987. That route would be built using the New York system, decking over entire streets and blocking out the sun. However, the 1897 proposal was even more ambitious. Besides the old locations granted in what's familiarly known as the Meg's Charter, there will be new locations asked for. Another line, beginning at Brattle Square, Cambridge, is to be run over West Boston Bridge, up Cambridge Street, through Bowdoin Square, Court Street, and Scully Square. The company offers to build a subway beginning at Joy Street on Cambridge Street, where the hill commences, and running under Bowdoin Square under the streets named, and connecting with the subway in Scully Square, now under construction. That route might be familiar as the core of the Red Line, before it was eventually extended on both the north and south ends. So before Joe Meggs passed away in 1907, he saw his state charter get used to build a subway, which he always hated, and a New York system elevated train, which he thought his own design superior to. In the meantime, he saw the elegant tracks and groundbreaking cylindrical trains of his Cambridge demonstration track dismantled and sold as scrap. Today, the site's occupied by a commuter rail maintenance yard and a Fairfield Inn on O'Brien Highway. For years, the only commemoration of the site of the Miggs monorail was a small plaque on a house front on a nearby side street. And now I think even the plaque is gone. On last week's show, I shared the story of the World Flyers, who completed the first journey around the world by air by landing in Boston in 1924. That's not the only aviation first we've covered on the podcast. Back in September 2017, episode 46 was all about the pioneer aeronauts who used balloonescence to dazzle the crowds of thousands who came out to watch them, including an ascent by Charles Durant on September 13, 1834, in which Durant was nearly lost at sea. You'll also hear how balloons facilitated the first aerial photo of Boston and the first aviation-related lawsuit in Massachusetts. Manned flight has its origins in France in 1783. A couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we quoted a letter that John Adams wrote to Abigail from Paris in September of that year. He was eager to see Abigail, and said, If the balloon should be carried to such perfection as to give mankind the safe navigation of the air, I will fly in one of them at the rate of 30 knots an hour. His confidence was a little bit premature, 
but it goes to show how much hype there was around balloons at the time. That summer, the Montgolfier brothers demonstrated a hot air balloon for the first time. Joseph Michel and Jacques Etienne were papermakers who had been experimenting with the idea of flight since they watched scraps of paper rising out of a fire. Believing that there was a special gas in smoke that was lighter than air, they built small balloons out of paper and taffeta over wood frames, lit small fires under them, and were pleased to see the contraptions rise off the ground. By June of 1783, they had conducted their first public demonstration of a balloon, which got them noticed in Paris. That September, a sheep, a duck, and a rooster became the first creatures to ascend in a balloon, flying from the royal palace at Versailles with Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette looking on. When both fowl and the more terrestrial sheep survived a flight of some 1,500 feet of altitude, the king decided to allow human testing. In October, Etienne became the first human to ascend in a balloon, in a secret test performed at the brothers' workshop. Later that day, a physicist friend also ascended in a tethered balloon at their shop. In November, the physicist would make a public ascent in Paris, accompanied by a French army officer. They soared to 3,000 feet and traveled almost six miles before touching down outside the city walls. This public flight touched off a round of balloon fever in France, with everything from shirt sleeves to seat backs being designed with balloon-like flares, and colorful balloons were printed on all kinds of consumer products. Just two years later, as balloon fever raged on, the first Bostonian took to the skies. Dr. John Jeffries was a physician from Boston. He's an interesting character, and he'll probably pop up in future podcasts. He worked closely with John Adams as a witness for the defense in the Boston Massacre trial, but as the American Revolution heated up, he became a staunch loyalist. He served as a physician in the Royal Army during the war before moving to London. There, he ended up becoming personal physician to the Adams family while John was serving as America's first ambassador to Great Britain. As she was waiting for Jeffries to deliver her first grandchild, Abigail Adams would say, Dr. Jeffries is our family physician and is really an amiable, benevolent man, though formerly he took a different side in politics. Later, Jeffries would move back to Boston, but it was during his exile in London that he made aviation history. About a year after the Montgolfier's first demonstrated balloon flight, a French balloonist and daredevil named Jean-Pierre Blanchard arrived in London and began giving demonstrations. As a man of science, Jeffries was fascinated. After being carried aloft in a brief ascent from London, he offered to fund Blanchard's next major undertaking, on the condition that he be allowed to come along as a scientific observer. Together, the two staged a balloon and supplies in Dover and waited for the weather to turn in their favor. On January 7, 1785, the day dawned clear with a light breeze from the west. They began to inflate Blanchard's balloon with hydrogen, which, at that time, meant mixing iron filings with sulfuric acid in barrels and piping it into the balloon. Finally, they ascended, with Jeffries carrying a barometer to measure their altitude as they progressed. As the breeze carried them slowly across the English Channel, the flight passed into history. They were the first to cross the Channel by air, and the first ever international flight. Over Calais, Jeffries dropped a letter from Ben Franklin's son William to the American delegation in Paris, which is now considered the world's first piece of airmail. Despite making history, the flight was not without difficulties. 
About a month after their ascent, Jeffries met John Quincy Adams at a dinner with Ben Franklin in Paris. John Quincy's diary records the tense atmosphere aboard the balloon. Dined at Dr. Franklin's with a great deal of company. Among the rest, Dr. Jeffries, who lately crossed with Mr. Blanchard from Dover to Calais. He related his voyage, in which his intrepidity had well nigh been fatal to him. The balloon descended, he says, three quarters of a mile in two minutes. He and Mr. Blanchard were both of them obliged to throw almost all of their clothes into the water. At one time, they were not more than 20 yards above the surface. So, Jeffries and Blanchard had arrived in France half-naked, having thrown all their equipment and most of their clothing overboard to gain altitude as they drifted across the English Channel. After that history-making voyage, Jean-Pierre Blanchard would bring his balloon to the United States. He ascended from Walnut Street Prison in Philadelphia on January 9, 1793. President Washington and a group of dignitaries were on hand to witness the feat, along with hundreds who paid to watch him take off from inside the walls of the prison, and even more who skipped the admission fee and watched from the surrounding streets. About an hour later, he touched down in New Jersey. Even after ballooning took off in the U.S., it would be decades before the first documented ascent from Boston. Back in the early 20th century, there was a club in Boston that called itself the Association of International Aeronautical Pilots of America. They had formed in 1908 as a way for licensed balloonists to trade tips and tricks, and they continued meeting until at least 1920, well into the era of airplane flight. Their annual meeting was held on November 1st, and they claimed the date was chosen to mark the anniversary of the first balloon ascent in Boston, which they imply was given by Dr. Jeffries, and say was held on November 1st, 1790, in front of the Green Dragon Tavern. The only reference we can find to this date as the first ascent in Boston is in a newsletter called Arrow, where the club is advertising their annual banquet. It's possible that the date refers to the demonstration of a small unmanned balloon. It's equally possible that the event in 1790 was completely made up. There may not be any evidence to back up that claim for a 1790 balloon ascent, but there is plenty of evidence for the first official ascent in Boston. And that evidence is the first aviation-related lawsuit in Massachusetts. On September 3, 1821, the aeronaut Louis Charles Gill took off from Washington Gardens on Tremont Street across from the Common. The flight seemed to be successful, and the balloon descended at Ten Hills Farm in Somerville. A man named Swan had a large commercial vegetable garden there at the time. An article about the trial describes the descent. The facts are there stated as follows. Gilles ascended in a balloon in the vicinity of Swan's garden and descended into his garden. When he descended, his body was hanging out of the car of the balloon in a very perilous situation, and he called to a person at work in Swan's field to help him, in a voice audible to the pursuing crowd. After the balloon descended, it dragged along over potatoes and radishes about 30 feet when Gill was taken out. The balloon was carried to a barn at the farther end of the premises. Gill and his balloon caused an estimated $15 of damage to Mr. Swan's farm. The real problem came when 200 or more people broke down Mr. Swan's fences, trampling his fields in an attempt to see the balloon. They caused at least $75 in damage. 
The jury found that Giel's shouts for help made him liable for the crowd's damage and assessed a judgment against him for $90. Almost a century later, newspapers would cite the case as a note of warning for barnstorming aviators who might land in farm fields. A decade after that first ascent by Louis-Charles Giel, balloon ascents were a popular entertainment for the people of Boston. In the last week of August and the first two weeks of September 1834, Charles Durant built a temporary amphitheater on Boston Common and gave a series of balloon demonstrations. An Irish actor touring the States recorded his impressions of the crowd waiting expectantly for one of Durant's ascents. On arriving at Boston, I found the whole city in movement to assist, as the French say, in the ascent of a balloon, constructed by a Mr. Durant, already well known as an experienced and intrepid aeronaut. Purchasing a ticket for the amphitheater, a lofty temporary enclosure with rows of seats running round it, I fell into the crowd, and made my way across the common at the extremity of which the building in question was situated. On this day, the whole area was alive with expectant gazers, whilst the several lines of streets leading into it were thronged with hurrying reinforcements. Selecting a good point of vantage, I stood for some time examining the materials out of which this vast congregation was made up, and I have never seen a population whose general appearance would endure so close a scrutiny as well. I computed that the women outnumbered their less attractive companions by at least a third. These were all in holiday trim, of course, invariably well-dressed, but commonly having a pretension to taste and style I have never elsewhere observed so universally prevalent amongst the same class. The men, both in air and dress, were inferior to their female friends, so much so that it was difficult to imagine them belonging to the same order. And this remark, I think, will be found generally to apply throughout the Union. After a time, I slowly made my way to the amphitheater, presented my ticket, and was admitted within the enclosure, where the arrangements for the flight were in busy progress. The Boston Post noted Durant's first ascent on August 25th, when he drifted around the city on gently shifting winds, before eventually landing near Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge. The Post quoted Durant's account of a publicity study staged during that first flight. After about an hour, he attained a sufficient easterly position to allow the rabbit and parachute to reach Boston. As I was then over the back bay, I judged the best plan to give the spectators a view of the descent of the rabbit would be to keep in the lower current and thus reach the land on the western side of the back bay. At four hours and forty-nine minutes, I judged myself sufficiently over the land to let go of the rabbit. The barometer then stood at 2602, the thermometer at 68 degrees, and four minutes after I saw him land. A number of persons on foot and in carriages hastened to the spot and caught the parachute before it touched the earth. That first ascent got the town talking, but it was his last ascent from Boston on September 13th that was the most memorable to the aeronaut himself. His account appears in the American Magazine of Useful and Entertaining Knowledge, edited by Nathaniel Hawthorne. My twelfth aerial voyage is so full of pleasing incidents to myself that I the more cheerfully comply with a request to furnish the minutes of the tour. He ascended from his amphitheater as usual and hovered over the Charles between the Common and Cambridgeport as he gradually rose to an altitude of 8,000 feet. A strong high-altitude air current began carrying him out over the harbor. When I descended to the lower current, I was over Fort Warren, and at five hours, six minutes, was so near as to hear the remarks of persons on the island. 
My course was now changed and again directed towards Boston. I went down to speak to a barge which was heading to intersect my line of progression. I heard distinctly the remark of those on board. Mr. Durant, do you intend to alight here? I answered no and asked his name, wishing to report him in the city, but I could not understand his reply. The sun was becoming more and more interesting, and I think I never beheld so thrilling and animating a sight as was presented on approaching the city. The bay appeared alive, with vessels and boats of all classes. From one of them came delightful music, and approaching the wharves so near as to hear the bells and voices of thousands of fellow beings, waving handkerchiefs and hats to welcome my return, produced a pleasing sensation, which you may better imagine than I can describe. I rose as I entered the city to prevent danger from contact with steeples, though I passed sufficiently near to observe distinctly the movements of the inhabitants. He first attempted to land back at Boston Common, where his voyage began, but he overshot his goal. As the breeze carried him into Cambridgeport, he considered alighting in Harvard Yard, but was still moving too fast. At 34 minutes past five, I was opposite the college at Cambridge and addressed an evening paper to Honorable Josiah Quincy, which I sent down with another that I found in the car directed to a gentleman in Cambridgeport. At one minute past six, I conversed with a gentleman who told me I was in Waltham, 10 miles from Boston, and desired I would come down. I gave him some evening papers which I found in the car, directed to gentlemen and newspaper offices in different parts of the United States. I requested he would put them in the post office, which he promised to do. After showing off for the folks on the ground, he realized that his anchor cables were dragging and in danger of tangling in the treetops. He cut them away, cast off some ballast, and soon rose to a half a mile above the ground level again. He finally landed on a farm in Lincoln, where onlookers quickly gathered to help Durant fold up the balloon. They carried him off to the nearest tavern, where many toasts were toasted, before he was taken back to Boston at the head of a veritable parade of chaises and carriages. Despite all the excitement, he was back at his own lodging before 11 p.m. The voyage throughout was to me the most interesting one that I ever performed. It is my last from Boston this season, and if it has met the approbation of your citizens, I shall enjoy the pleasure of having contributed to at least the gratification of an intelligent community, whose many acts of kind and polite attention towards me will forever leave a pleasing memento. Yours, C.F. Durant, Tremont House, Boston, 14th September, 1834. As early as the Napoleonic Wars, military leaders saw the potential of balloons to allow their scouts to peer deep behind enemy lines. However, it wasn't until after the invention of photography that this dream became practical. The world's first aerial photograph was taken of Paris in 1858, though it's long since been lost. The very next year, the French army began using balloons to photograph enemy lines during the Franco-Austrian War. In 1860, a photo was taken that is now the world's oldest surviving aerial photograph. On October 8th, the Boston Herald carried an account by a Samuel King of King and Allen Aeronauts, who had ascended in his balloon Queen of the Air with photographer James Wallace Black. Mr. Black, the eminent photographic artist of the firm Black and Batchelder and I ascended together. First of all, we arose to 1,200 feet, but we wished to get more extended views that could be obtained at such a height 
and so after being drawn down and detaching the rope, we ascended in the usual manner. Soon an expansive field was opened to us, and we hoped to be able to secure some of the magnificent scenes which we now scanned. Everything was in readiness, and an attempt was made to take the city that was now sitting so beautifully for her picture. But just at the time, we encountered a difficulty which had never before suggested itself. The gas, expanding as the balloon rose, filled the surrounding atmosphere, penetrating even into the camera, neutralizing the effect of the light and turning the coating on the glass plate to a uniform dark brown color. Several plates were spoiled in this manner before we discovered the cause, by which we lost very much precious time as we were rapidly drifting away in a southerly direction. Five days later, they repeated the attempt, and on October 13, 1860, the first aerial photo was captured of Boston. Describing it in the Atlantic in 1863, Oliver Wendell Holmes waxed poetic. Boston as the eagle and wild goose see it is a very different object from the same place as the solid citizen looks up at its eaves and chimneys. The Old South and Trinity Church are two landmarks not to be mistaken. Washington Street slants across the picture as a narrow cleft. Milk Street winds as if the old cowpath which gave it its name had been followed by the builders of its commercial palaces. Windows, chimneys, and skylights attract the eye in the central parts of the view, exquisitely defined, bewildering in numbers. As a first attempt, it is on the whole a remarkable success, but its greatest interest is in showing what we may hope to see accomplished in the same direction. Much as those first ascents in gas and hot air balloons in the 1780s only barely hinted at the world of aviation to follow, this early photograph taken from a balloon only scratches the surface of what aerial photography would one day offer. Google, makers of the most widely used modern aerial photographs, wrote a blog post in October of 2010. 150 years ago today, on October 13, 1860, James Wallace Black shot the earliest still-existing aerial photograph in the U.S. He took the picture from a hot air balloon suspended above Boston Common, and the result, titled Boston as the Eagle and the Wild Goose See It, is truly beautiful. We at Google owe James Wallace Black a debt of gratitude. Without his early experimentation with aerial imagery, Google Earth may never have come to be. Technology has come a long way since James Wallace Black took his photo of Boston, and glass plate negative box cameras and hot air balloons have given way to airplanes with mounted camera arrays. But what hasn't changed is how technology gives us new ways to look at our world. Soon and after that 1860 ascent, a civil war broke out in America in which balloon-based photography would be widely used for surveillance. After the war, interest would soon turn to powered airships that could be navigated by some means other than the vagaries of shifting winds. And by the 1920s, a small airfield had opened in East Boston to serve the growing number of heavier-than-air flyers who called Boston home. But that's another topic for another podcast. The last of our classic stories today is taken from episode 115, which aired last January. Building the Charles River Bridge required innovation in engineering, business, and law. First, the designers had to figure out how to build a 1,500-foot span that could also function as a drawbridge. In the business world, the proprietors of the Charles River Bridge were established as one of Massachusetts' first corporations. And on the legal side, 
The bridge and its proprietors were later the subject of a U.S. Supreme Court case, setting limits to private property rights. In the earliest days of the town of Boston, it was a small town on a tiny peninsula, only connected to the mainland by a narrow neck of land. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, it's possible that you may have heard us mention this before. Militia units from around New England streamed into Cambridge and Roxbury to keep the British regulars trapped in the peninsular town of Boston. Boston transformed itself from a tiny town on a peninsula to a sprawling city. It was a small, densely populated city on a tiny, mitten-shaped peninsula. The tiny Shawmut Peninsula that comprised Boston. Before Boston was expanded by filling the salt marshes that surrounded the Shawmut Peninsula, John Winthrop and his Puritan followers settled on the tiny peninsula they called Boston. Back when Boston was a tiny village on the Shawmut Peninsula, the only road leading off the peninsula of Boston. New England militias rushed to surround Boston and trap the British regulars within the peninsular town. When I used to give tours of the Back Bay, I'd often use the night of Paul Revere's ride to illustrate how isolated Boston was at that time. Revere himself rode across the mouth of the Charles River from the north end to Charlestown, while the British troops took longboats from the foot of Boston Common to the Cambridge shoreline. At the same time, courier William Dawes rode out Boston Neck passing himself off to the British sentries as a drunken farmer who had dallied a little too long at the market. After he made it out through the gates, he had to ride through the farmlands and marshes of Roxbury and Brookline before he could finally cross at the Great Bridge in Cambridge, at today's Harvard Square. Revere's route out of town mirrored the earliest means for Bostonians to cross the Charles, established very soon after the town itself was founded. At a court of assistance holding at Boston, November 9, 1630, it was ordered that whosoever shall first give his name up to Mr. Governor that he will undertake to set up a ferry betwixt Boston and Charlestown and shall begin the same at such time as Mr. Governor shall appoint, shall have one penny for every person and one penny for every hundred weight of goods he shall so transport. Less than a year later, someone took the governor up on his offer. June 14, 1631, the following entry was made in town records. Edward Converse hath undertaken to set up a ferry betwixt Charlestown and Boston, for which he is to have tuppence for every single person, and one penny apiece if there be two or more. According to an 1899 pamphlet about the history of Boston's bridges and ferries prepared for the Boston Transit Commission, the proceeds generated by the ferry were in 1640 earmarked to support the relatively new college in Cambridge. On the 2nd of November, 1637, the ferry between Boston and Charlestown was referred to the governor and treasurer to be let at 40 pounds per annum, beginning with the 1st of December, and from thence for three years. On the 28th of November, 1637, the ferry was so leased to Edward Converse. At a meeting of the general court held on the 7th of October, 1640, the ferry between Boston and Charlestown was granted to Harvard College. As Boston grew rapidly during the Puritan Great Migration period, there was quickly more traffic than the ferry could handle, and it was headed in different directions than straight across the mouth of the river to Charlestown. As more and more people had business in Watertown or Cambridge, a route had to be laid out similar to the one that William Dawes would follow over a century later. As William Marchione wrote in his book, Boston Miscellany, by 1662, traffic on the Roxbury Highway had grown to such an extent that a bridge was needed, to be known as the Great Bridge, the largest public works project yet undertaken in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Great Bridge proved difficult to build and even more difficult to maintain. 
The original span, supported by hollow logs filled with stones, was swept away by a flood in 1685. In 1690, it was rebuilt on piles, a difficult technique since only hand power was available to raise the weight of the driver. Tradition tells us that as many as 5,000 blows were required to propel some of the piles to a firm bearing. Because of the heavy costs associated with building and maintaining the Great Bridge, all of the surrounding towns were required to contribute to its support. The Great Bridge was the only bridge across the Charles River Basin before 1786, with the exception of a narrow cart bridge at the basin's westernmost extremity in Watertown Square. This bridge had been built in 1641, and it followed the path of today's Galen Street Bridge nearly exactly. The bridges at Watertown and Cambridge would eventually feature in a Revolutionary-era story in the lead-up to the battles at Lexington and Concord. To test how the provincials would react if his regulars marched into the countryside, British General Gage ordered Lord Percy to lead a march out of Boston Neck on March 30, 1775. Having first marched up the river to Cambridge, the 1st Brigade was surprised to see that the locals had pulled up all the planks. Being frugal Yankees, they didn't burn the planks or throw them into the river. They carefully stacked them on the Cambridge side so they could be nailed back in place once the threat was passed. It may have been possible to send a few soldiers across on the support beams to put the planks back in place, but doing so would likely have meant a fight with the local militia. So Lord Percy and the 1st Brigade kept marching on to Watertown. There they were met with an intact bridge, but two cannons pointed at them. However, the local militia, perhaps believing that discretion was the better part of valor, then didn't stick around to man the cannon when the regulars arrived. At that point, the 1st Brigade turned around and marched back to Boston. When the regulars marched on Concord three weeks later, they would no longer believe marching through Watertown or Cambridge to be viable options. Of course, today's Boston is connected to its neighbors by bridges over the Neponset River as well, but in the 17th century, nobody had considered annexing Dorchester to Boston yet. However, that doesn't mean that the neighboring towns weren't thinking about infrastructure. At a meeting of the Massachusetts General Court on April 1, 1634, a resolution passed stating, Mr. Israel Stoughton hath liberty granted him to build a mill, a ware, and a bridge over Neponset River, and is to sell the alewives he takes there at five shillings. You can hear more about the bridge Israel Stoughton built, along with his mill, which was the first water-powered grist mill in New England, in episode 59. Along with these successful bridges, in those early days of the province, there were also bridge schemes that fell apart. That 1899 pamphlet about the history of the Charles River Bridge, prepared for the Boston Transit Commission, relates one of these aborted plans. From the college records of a meeting on the 7th of April, 1713, it appears that a motion had been made in the general court for building a bridge at the ferry between Boston and Charlestown, and it was voted that the president and treasurer be desired to represent and to insist upon the right which the college hath in and to the profits of the said ferry. That vision was still fresh 26 years later, at a Boston town meeting on Friday, May 18, 1739. A petition of Mr. John Staniford presented to the Great and General Court, praying that he might be favored with an order or license from the said court to take subscriptions for the building of a bridge over Charles River, from the westerly part of the town of Boston, to the Honorable Colonel Phipps Farm. In that meeting, the resolution passed and a committee of seven was appointed to study the prospect of building a bridge. Nevertheless, the project did not progress before a town meeting that fall. Boston, 
October 11, 1739. The committee to whom was referred the consideration of the petition of Mr. John Staniford are of the opinion that a bridge from the western part of the town of Boston to Colonel Phipps' farm will be a public benefit, and therefore that it will be proper for the town of Boston to make no objection to the prayer of said petition. Having endorsed the plan, it was continued twice at 1740 town meetings. Then, residents voted to appropriate money for it in May 1741. The petition of Mr. John Staniford relating to the building of a bridge from Boston to Cambridge over Charles's River being read and debated upon, in answer thereto voted, that when the building of a bridge from Boston to Cambridge shall be undertaken, the town will carry on the affairs so far as to build that part of the bridge which may be convenient to be built on the flats from Boston shore to low watermark provided that in order to enable them to effect such part of the works, the town can obtain from the great and general court the loan of a sufficient sum of money upon reasonable terms, and also may be entitled to their proportionable part of the incomes of said bridge. Even with the plan approved and money appropriated, the bridge was not built. Perhaps for political reasons, and perhaps for technological reasons, the bridge would not be completed for another 45 years. By that time, Paul Revere's ride had come and gone. Boston had grown rapidly throughout the 18th century, and it had outgrown the capacity of the Charlestown Ferry. Finally, on March 9, 1785, an act of the Great and General Court, our legislature, authorized another bridge project. This time, it would be seen to completion. We're going to read a few passages from this act because there are several key points. First of all, it names the proprietors of the bridge as one of the earliest corporations in the province. An act for incorporating certain persons for the purpose of building a bridge over Charles River, between Boston and Charlestown, and supporting the same during the term of 40 years. Whereas erecting a bridge over Charles River, in the place where the ferry between Boston and Charlestown is now kept, will be of great public utility, and Thomas Russell Esquire and others having petitioned this court for an act of incorporation to empower them to build the said bridge, and many persons under the expectation of such an act have subscribed to a fund for executing and completing the aforesaid purpose, be it therefore enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives in general court assembled, and by the authority of the same, that the Honorable John Hancock, Thomas Russell, Nathaniel Gorham, James Swan, and Eben Parsons Esquires, so long as they shall continue to be proprietors of the said fund, together with all those who are and those who shall become proprietors to the said fund or stock, shall be a corporation and body politic under the name of the Proprietors of Charles River Bridge. Then the Act defines in strict terms how the bridge is to be constructed, which tells us a lot about what state-of-the-art bridge technology was like in 1785. The said bridge shall be well-built, at least 40 feet wide, of sound and suitable materials, with a convenient draw or passageway at least 30 feet wide and at a proper place, with well-constructed substantial piers on each side, and well-planked on the top and sides with plank proper for such a bridge, and the same shall be kept in good, safe, and passable repair. That also tells us that the Charles River and the Back Bay were still an important part of Boston's seaport because of the 30-foot-wide drawbridge over the main channel. The act continues, And the said proprietors shall constantly keep the said bridge accommodated with at least twenty good lamps on each side, which shall be kept well supplied with oil, 
and lighted in due season and kept burning till twelve o'clock at night. And also at the several places where the toll shall be received, they shall erect and constantly expose to open view a sign or board with the rates of toll of all tollable articles fairly and legibly written thereon in large or capital letters. And the draw shall be lifted for all ships and vessels without toll or pay, except such as usually pass under Cambridge Bridge and those passing for pleasure. So the Act prescribes a drawbridge with streetlights and toll booths, and it lays out both the tolls for anyone crossing the bridge and the way the tolls would be used for the benefit of Harvard, replacing the ferry fares that the college would no longer be collecting. That after the said toll shall commence, the said proprietors or corporation shall annually pay to Harvard College or University the sum of 200 pounds during the said term of 40 years. And at the end of the said term, the said bridge shall revert to and be the property of the commonwealth, saving to the said college or university a reasonable and annual compensation for the income of the ferry, which they might have received had not the bridge been erected. For Harvard's benefit, the following tolls would be charged. Each foot passenger or one person passing, two-thirds of a penny. One person in horse, two pence two-thirds of a penny. Single horse cart or sled or sleigh, four pence. Wheelbarrows, handcarts, and other vehicles capable of carrying like weight, one penny one-third of a penny. Single horse and chaise, chair, or sulky, eight pence. Coaches, chariots, phaetons, and curricles, one shilling each. All other wheel carriages or sleds drawn by more than one beast, six pence. Sleighs drawn by more than one beast, also six pence. Neat cattle and horses passing the said bridge, exclusive of those road or in carriages or teams, one penny, one-third of a penny. Swine and sheep, four pence for each dozen, and at the same rate for a greater or lesser number. And in all cases, the same toll shall be paid for all carriages and vehicles passing the said bridge whether the same be loaded or not loaded, and to each team one man and no more shall be allowed as a driver to pass free from payment of toll. And in all cases, double toll shall be paid on the Lord's Day, and at all times when the toll-gatherer shall not attend his duty, the gate or gates shall be left open. With the enabling legislation in place, work began on the bridge almost immediately. The 1813 historical sketch of Charlestown by Josiah Bartlett describes how the Charles River Bridge was built, while the construction was still fairly fresh in recent memory. This bridge, which was 13 months in building and considered as the greatest enterprise which had been undertaken in the country, is 1,503 feet long. It has 75 piers, each composed of seven posts of oak timber, driven into the bed of the river and united by cap pieces and girts. The piers are connected with string pieces, which are covered with four-inch plank. The bridge is 43 feet wide, with a railed way on each side for foot passengers. It has a draw 30 feet wide, and is accommodated with 40 lamps. The depth of the water in the channel on high tides is about 40 feet. If that's accurate, then the builder stayed very true to the specifications set down in the act authorizing its construction. The grand opening of the bridge was time to coincide with the 11th anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill. The 1899 Transit Commission pamphlet quotes a subsequent edition of the Massachusetts Sentinel to describe what that opening day was like. Saturday last was observed as a day of rejoicing, occasioned by the proprietors opening the new bridge over Charles River, 
This commodious and handsome structure is 1,470 feet in length and 42 feet wide within the railing. This bridge has been completed in 13 months, and whilst it exhibits the greatest effect of private enterprise within the United States, is a most pleasing proof of how certainly objects of magnitude may be attained by spirited exertions. The design of opening the bridge on the 17th of June, it was natural to suppose, would combine the most agreeable sensations, and it's certain that but few were disappointed. A huge parade was planned, marching from the old State House, which of course was then just known as the State House, down to the river, across the bridge, and up to Bunker Hill, with great pomp and circumstance, as the Sentinel continued. The company invited moved in procession from the State House precisely at one o'clock. Thirteen cannon were discharged from Copps Hill while they were passing the bridge. It's computed that at least six thousand people, besides horses and carriages, were upon it at the same moment. No one that remembered the confusion and horror with which the Battle of Bunker Hill was attended, the town of Charlestown in flames, and all assistance precluded by the astonishing fire of artillery, the movements of the hostile armies with their dreadful apparatus, the fatal crackling of the musketry, the wounded and dying carried off by their friends, and the apprehension seated on every brow lest the final period of American liberty had approached, could be an uninterested spectator of the joyous scenes which were now everywhere presented. The streets, the windows, and eminences in the neighborhood of the bridge swarmed with spectators to the amount of at least 20,000, and the ladies were particularly attractive. An elegant dinner for 800 persons was provided at the expense of the proprietors. Joy crowned the day, and in the evening the lamps were lighted on the bridge and produced not only a happy effect on the eye, but were very useful in directing the steps of some of the votaries of the rosy deity who returned to town between 10 and 11, with a band of music before them, inspired by the collective pressure of the scene, but above all, by the generous drafts they had taken to commemorate this auspicious occasion. That very day, Lucy Cranch wrote a letter to her Aunt Abigail Adams, who was living in London during John's tenure as America's first ambassador to Great Britain. Having attended the grand opening of the bridge, Lucy seems to have been quite smitten. You, my aunt, have given me an account of a ball. I will endeavor to give you a description of the parade at the opening of Charlestown Bridge. If I had your descriptive pen, I might give pleasure. I am sure you would have felt as much interested in it as you do at a birthnight ball. It was on the 17th of June, the anniversary of the day which beheld Charlestown in flames. Sister and I went to town to see. The proprietors of the bridge invited each branch of the legislature, the governors of the college, the clergy, the lawyers, and a large number of gentlemen besides, to an entertainment on Bunker Hill, on the very spot where the memorable battle was fought, and where the military glory of our country began. We went to Charlestown in the morning that we might have a full view of the procession. It went from the State House in Boston. The appearance most pleasing to me was that of the artificers who had been employed in the bridge. They walked directly after the artillery, each of them carrying one of the instruments they had used in forming that stupendous work. What a striking contrast to that day eleven years when every mechanic threw down the harmless instruments of industry and caught hold of the sword and rushed impetuous to the fight. After the artificers followed the proprietors, then the governor, lieutenant governor, council, senate, representatives, etc., etc., to near a thousand gentlemen who dined upon the hill. When the procession came down to the draw, which was then first passed, the cannon were fired and the bells rang. 
After dinner, 13 toasts were drunk as usual, and a number of patriotic songs were sang accompanied by a band of music. The one composed upon the occasion I will enclose to you. I never saw such a vast crowd of people in my life. They poured in from every part of the country. The bridge looks beautiful in the evening. There are 40 lamps on it. Cousin Charles and my brother were with us. Mr. J.Q.A. is too much of the philosopher and student to be at such a frolic. It could not draw his steadiness aside. We sometimes fear he will injure his health by his very great attention to his studies. He is determined to be great in every particular. Her cousin J.Q.A., future president John Quincy Adams, was exactly the same age as Lucy Cranch. However, when he was just a few days short of his eighth birthday, his mother had taken him to the top of Penn's Hill in Braintree on June 17, 1775, where he watched the British artillery bombard American positions on Bunker Hill. In a letter 71 years later, he said, I saw with my own eyes those fires and heard Britannia's thunders in the Battle of Bunker's Hill and witnessed the tears of my mother and mingled them with my own at the fall of Joseph Warren, a dear friend of my father and a beloved physician to me. That experience would lead him to a lifelong sensitivity about Bunker Hill, and later in life he would make a point of skipping the annual commemorations of the battle. When he wrote to his mother Abigail with his own account of the bridge's opening, he was not as enthusiastic as Lucy Cranch had been. This day, the bridge between Boston and Charlestown was completed. An entertainment was given upon the occasion by the proprietors to 600 people on Bunker's Hill. It is the anniversary of the famous battle fought there. It is better to be sure that oxen, sheep, calves, and fowls be butchered than men. And it is better that wine should be spilled than blood. But I do not think this was a proper place for reveling and feasting. The idea of being seated upon the bones of a friend, I should think, would have disgusted many. Such feelings may be called prejudices, but they are implanted by nature and cannot, I think, be blamed. You will see in the papers how the poets have been exerting their talents upon the occasion. I have seen five different sets of verses, not one of which has escaped the simile of the phoenix rising from its own ashes, applied to Charlestown. He repeated most of those sentiments in his diary, and he added a note explaining what was really going on when his cousin believed him to be too much the philosopher to attend the party. All the tutors were gone, so that we had no prayers in the afternoon, and there were not more than thirty persons in the commons. For my part, I did nothing all day in consequence of it. I went looking, but I couldn't find one of the Phoenix similes from June 17th that John Quincy referenced. However, this July 4th oration delivered in Charlestown just a few weeks later seems to follow the same form. The sound of the trumpet and the alarm of war are no longer heard in our land. We may now, with the highest satisfaction, anticipate the future glories of these United States and with pleasure behold our demolished towns, like the phoenix from her ashes, rising to our view with improved beauties. While the historian records the destruction of Charlestown and the ever-memorable battle on Bunker Heights, he will not be unmindful to relate that from the ruins of the old a new town is now rising, on a more enlarged and regular plan. Nor will he forget to notice with equal admiration the enterprise and ingenuity of our inhabitants in the rapid construction of the extensive and noble bridge across Charles River, which joins her to this metropolis. May the late sufferings of our friends and neighbors be more than compensated by their future advantages. May the origin of their distress prove the instrument of their growth and prosperity. 
For about seven years, the Charles River Bridge enjoyed a near monopoly on traffic in and out of Boston. You could ride upriver to the Great Bridge in Harvard Square, or you could take a ferry to Chelsea, but you would probably rather pay a nominal fee and ride or walk right across the river to Charlestown. All that began to change in 1792, when another bridge was proposed for Boston. Eventually known as the West Boston Bridge, this bridge would be much longer than the original Charles River Bridge. The January 7th edition of the Columbian Sentinel carried an advertisement for the new venture. As all citizens of the United States have an equal right to propose a measure that may be beneficial to the public or advantageous to themselves, and as no body of men have an exclusive right to take to themselves such a privilege, a number of gentlemen have proposed to open a new subscription for the purpose of building a bridge from West Boston to Cambridge at such place as the general court may be pleased to direct. A subscription for 200 shares in the proposed bridge will this day be opened at Samuel Cooper's office, north side of the State House. The proprietors of the West Boston Bridge were also incorporated by the state and granted a monopoly. Because the business of the Charles River Bridge would obviously be impacted by a new bridge, the legislature extended their original 40-year charter by an additional 30 years. Harvard College would collect a share of tolls from both bridges. An article in the Cambridge Tribune from March 11, 1893, reflected on the 100th anniversary of the act establishing the bridge. The proprietors of West Boston Bridge were incorporated by the legislature of 1792, and the act was approved by John Hancock, then the governor, on March 9th of that year. By this act, the proprietors were empowered to build a bridge and causeway from the westerly part of Boston, near the so-called Pest House, to Pelham's Island in Cambridge and were also required to make and maintain a good road from Pelham's Island aforesaid to the Cambridge Road, the bridge to be not less than 40 feet wide, to have a footway on each side, railings on the outside of the bridge, and also railings between the footways and the carriageway, and to be lighted with lamps the same distance apart as provided for Charles River Bridge to be kept burning till midnight. Having just retired after serving in the 2nd U.S. Congress, Declaration of Independence signer and future U.S. Vice President and Massachusetts Governor, Elbridge Gerry was the first person to cross the bridge. An issue of the Columbia Sentinel dated November 27, 1793, celebrated the grand opening. The bridge at West Boston was open for passengers on Saturday last. The elegance of the workmanship and the magnitude of the undertaking are perhaps unequaled in the history of enterprises. We hope the proprietors will not suffer pecuniary loss from their public spirit. They have a claim on the liberality and patronage of the government, and to these claims, government will not be inattentive. Another witness to the opening described it as a magnificent structure. It was erected at the expense of a company incorporated for that purpose and cost $76,700. The causeway on the Cambridge side was begun July 15, 1792, the woodwork April 8, 1793. The bridge was open for passengers November 23, 1793, seven months and a half from the time of laying the first pier. It is very handsomely constructed, and when lighted by its two rows of lamps extending a mile and a quarter, presents a vista which has a fine effect. It stands on 180 piers and is 3,483 feet long. The causeway is 3,344 feet and the distance from the end of the causeway to the first church in Cambridge is 7,810 feet. It's 40 feet wide, and it's railed on each side for foot passengers. The sides of the causeway are stoned, 
capstaned and railed, and on each side there is a canal about 30 feet wide. In 1828, construction began on yet another new bridge across the Charles. The Warren Bridge was almost right next to the original Charles River Bridge, and the owners announced that they would only collect tolls for six years in order to cover their costs, and then open the bridge to the public for free. As you might imagine, this proposal was more popular with the public than it was with the proprietors of the Charles River or West Boston bridges. When the new bridge opened, the revenue of the Charles River Bridge fell by over 60%, and the proprietors of the Charles River Bridge sued the owners of the Warren Bridge in a case before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. When the Warren Group won their case before the Mass SJC, the proprietors of the Charles River Bridge appealed the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court in a case that Lawrence W. Kennedy described as a landmark decision in constitutional law that established the principle that charter rights granted by the state were not absolute and exclusive. A new and more flexible outlook on property rights prevailed in the aftermath of this ruling. In Inventing the Charles River, Carl Hagelin gives an overview of the case. The first arguments before the Supreme Court were presented in March 1831, but less than a week later the court, failing to reach a decision, ordered the case continued. A motion for re-argument was accepted in 1833, but the arguments were not presented. One justice died, and another resigned the following year. Andrew Jackson nominated two new justices in January 1835, and the same month Webster recommended that the Charles River Bridge plaintiffs seek a settlement through the state legislature. In the spring of 1835, Chief Justice Marshall died, and a backlog of 60 cases piled up before Roger B. Taney was confirmed as the new Chief Justice. The Supreme Court finally heard arguments in the Bridge case in January 1837. Simon Greenleaf was granted a leave of absence from Harvard Law School to argue the defendant's case, a milestone in the history of academic freedom since Harvard's financial interests were with the plaintiff's side. Daniel Webster argued for the proprietors that the new charter indirectly destroyed the old. Justice Story wrote Charles Sumner a few days later that the arguments on both sides were, quote, a glorious exhibition for old Massachusetts. Less than three weeks later, the court decided in favor of the Warren Bridge. Story said in a letter to his wife that a case of grosser injustice or more oppressive legislation never existed. I feel humiliated, as I think everyone here is, by the act which has now been confirmed. The Charles River Bridge proprietors were still obligated to maintain the bridge, to tend the draw, and to pay Harvard $666 each year. They petitioned the legislature for release from those obligations and for compensation for the loss of their property. The legislature not only refused to offer compensation, but declined to even study the value of their franchise. The Bridge Corporation responded by raising the draw and closing the bridge. Four years later, in 1841, the legislature approved a bill offering $25,000 in settlement to the proprietors. The act also reinstated the tolls for no more than two years, to repair the bridge and to compensate the stockholders. In 1847, the legislature granted Harvard $3,333.30 in compensation for the loss of the college's annuity during years when the state had ownership of the bridge. The college's ancient ferry privilege, granted in 1640, was over. In the late 1830s and early 1840s, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was courting his great love, Fanny Appleton. At the time, he lived in George Washington's former Cambridge headquarters on Brattle Street near Harvard Square 
while Fanny lived with her parents in Beacon Hill. To court her, Henry would walk across the West Boston Bridge. After seven years of walking across that bridge, Fanny sent Henry a letter on May 10, 1843, agreeing to marry him. Even on that joyful day, he skipped the carriage and walked from his house across the bridge to hers. Reflecting on their courtship later, he wrote a poem in 1845 called The Bridge, which went in part, And like those waters rushing among the wooden piers, a flood of thoughts came o'er me that filled my eyes with tears. How often, oh, how often, in the days that had gone by, I had stood on that bridge at midnight and gazed on that wave and sky. How often, oh, how often, I had wished that ebbing tide would bear me away on its bosom, or the ocean wild and wide. For my heart was hot and restless, and my life was full of care, and the burden laid upon me seemed greater than I could bear. But now it has fallen from me, it's buried in the sea, and only the sorrow of others throws its shadow over me. Yet whenever I cross the river, on its bridge with wooden piers, like the odor of brine from the ocean, comes the thought of other years. And I think how many thousands of care-encumbered men each bearing his burden of sorrow, have crossed the bridge since then. In a spree of construction from 1900 to 1907, the old West Boston Bridge was replaced by a new span. The new bridge was built out of granite, with pillars resembling salt and pepper shakers, adorned with carvings of Vikings. In 1927, that bridge was renamed in honor of the poet who had walked across its predecessor so many times. Today, you know it as the Longfellow Bridge, carrying cars, cyclists, pedestrians, and the Red Line across the Charles River. To learn more about these transportation firsts, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 202. I'll include the original notes from all three episodes, with lots of historic pictures, as well as links to the primary sources we used in researching each story. And of course, I'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Jane Hampton Cook's podcast interview about Remember the Ladies, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 